Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 18 Going down to the front door, I met the sergeant on the steps. It went against the grain with me, after what had passed between us, to show him that I felt any sort of interest in his proceedings. In spite of myself, however, I felt an interest that there was no resisting. My sense of dignity sank from under me, and out came the words, "'What news from Frizzing Hall?' "'I have seen the Indians,' answered Sergeant Cuff, "'and I have found out what Rosanna bought privately in the town on Thursday last.' The Indians will be set free on Wednesday in next week. There isn't a doubt on my mind, and there isn't a doubt on Mr. Murthwaite's mind that they came to this place to steal the Moonstone. Their calculations were all thrown out, of course, by what happened in the house on Wednesday night, and they have no more to do with the actual loss of the jewel than you have. But I can tell you one thing, Mr. Betteridge. If we don't find the Moonstone, they will— You've not heard the last of the three jugglers yet. Mr. Franklin came back from his walk as the sergeant said those startling words. Governing his curiosity better than I had governed mine, he passed us without a word and went on into the house. As for me, having already dropped my dignity, I determined to have the whole benefit of the sacrifice. So much for the Indians, I said. What about Rosanna next? Sergeant Cuff shook his head. "'The mystery in that quarter is thicker than ever,' he said. "'I have traced her to a shop at Frizzing Hall, kept by a linen draper named Maltby. She bought nothing whatever at any of the draper's shop or at any of the milliner's or tailor's shop, and she bought nothing at Maltby's but a piece of long cloth. She was very particular in choosing a certain quality. As to quantity, she bought enough to make a nightgown. "'Whose nightgown?' I asked." Her own, to be sure, between twelve and three on the Thursday morning, she must have slipped down to your young lady's room to settle the hiding of the moonstone while all the rest of you were in bed. In going back to her own room, her nightgown must have brushed the wet paint on the door. She couldn't wash out the stain, and she couldn't safely destroy the nightgown without first providing another like it to make the inventory of her linen complete. What proves that it was Rosanna's nightgown? I objected. The material she bought for making the substitute dress, answered the sergeant. If it had been Miss Verinder's nightgown, she would have had to buy lace and frilling and Lord knows what besides, and she wouldn't have had time to make it in one night. Plain long cloth means a plain servant's nightgown. No, no, Mr. Betteridge, all that is clear enough. The pinch of the question is... Why, after having provided the substitute dress, does she hide the smeared nightgown instead of destroying it? If the girl won't speak out, there's only one way of settling the difficulty. 
the hiding place at the shivering sand must be searched, and the true state of the case will be discovered there. How are you to find the place? I inquired. I am sorry to disappoint you, said the sergeant, but that's a secret which I mean to keep to myself. Not to irritate your curiosity as he irritated mine, I may here inform you that he had come back from Frizzing Hall provided with a search warrant. His experience in such matters told him that Rosanna was in all probability carrying about her a memorandum of the hiding place to guide her in case she returned to it under changed circumstances and after a lapse of time. Possessed of this memorandum, the sergeant would be furnished with all that he could desire. Now, Mr. Betteridge, he went on, suppose we drop speculation and get to business. I told Joyce to have an eye on Rosanna. Where is Joyce? Joyce was the Frizzing Hall policeman who had been left by Superintendent Seagrave at Sergeant Cuff's disposal. The clock struck two as he put the question, and punctual to the moment, the carriage came round to take Miss Rachel to her aunt's. One thing at a time, said the sergeant, stopping me, as I was about to send in search of Joyce. I must attend to Miss Verinder first. As the rain was still threatening, it was the close carriage that had been appointed to take Miss Rachel to Frizzing Hall. Sergeant Cuff beckoned Samuel to come down to him from the rumble behind. You will see a friend of mine waiting among the trees on this side of the lodge gate, he said. My friend, without stopping the carriage, will get up into the rumble with you. You have nothing to do but to hold your tongue and shut your eyes. Otherwise, you will get into trouble. With that advice, he sent the footman back to his place. What Samuel thought, I don't know. It was plain to my mind that Miss Rachel was to be privately kept in view from the time when she left our house, if she did leave it. A watch set on my young lady, a spy behind her in the rumble of her mother's carriage. I could have cut my own tongue out for having forgotten myself so far as to speak to Sergeant Cuff. The first person to come out of the house was my lady, she stood aside, on the top step, posting herself there to see what happened. Not a word did she say, either to the sergeant or to me. With her lips closed and her arms folded in the light garden cloak, which she had wrapped around her on coming into the air, there she stood, as still as a statue, waiting for her daughter to appear. In a minute more, Miss Rachel came downstairs, very nicely dressed in some soft yellow stuff that set off her dark complexion and clipped her tight in the form of a jacket round the waist. She had a smart little straw hat on her head with a white veil twisted round it. She had primrose-colored gloves that fitted her hands like a second skin. Her beautiful black hair looked as smooth as satin under her hat. Her little ears were like rosy shells that had a pearl dangling from each of them. She came swiftly out to us, as straight as a lily on its stem, and as lithe and supple in every movement she made as a young cat. Nothing that I could discover was altered in her pretty face but her eyes and her lips. Her eyes were brighter and fiercer than I liked to see, and her lips had so completely lost their color and their smile that I hardly knew them again. She kissed her mother in a hasty and sudden manner on the cheek. She said, "'Try to forgive me, Mama," and then pulled down her veil over her face so vehemently that she tore it. 
In another moment, she had run down the steps and had rushed into the carriage as if it was a hiding place. Sergeant Cuff was just as quick on his side. He put Samuel back and stood before Miss Rachel with the open carriage door in his hand at the instant when she settled herself in her place. "'What do you want?' says Miss Rachel from behind her veil. "'I want to say one word to you, Miss,' answered the sergeant, "'before you go.' I can't presume to stop your paying a visit to your aunt. I can only venture to say that your leaving us, as things are now, puts an obstacle in the way of my recovering your diamond. Please to understand that, and now decide for yourself whether you go or stay. Miss Rachel never even answered him. Drive on, James, she called out to the coachman. Without another word, the sergeant shut the carriage door. Just as he closed it, Mr. Franklin came running down the steps. "'Goodbye, Rachel,' he said, holding out his hand. "'Drive on,' cried Miss Rachel, louder than ever, and taking no more notice of Mr. Franklin than she had taken of Sergeant Cuff. Mr. Franklin stepped back thunderstruck, as well he might be. The coachman, not knowing what to do, looked towards my lady, still standing immovable on the top step." My lady, with anger and sorrow and shame all struggling together in her face, made him a sign to start the horses, and then turned back hastily into the house. Mr. Franklin, recovering the use of his speech, called after her as the carriage drove off. Aunt, you were quite right. Accept my thanks for all your kindness, and let me go. My lady turned as though to speak to him. Then, as if distrusting herself, waved her hand kindly. "'Let me see you before you leave us, Franklin,' she said in a broken voice, and went on to her own room. "'Do me a last favor, Betteridge,' says Mr. Franklin, turning to me with the tears in his eyes. "'Get me away to the train as soon as you can.' He, too, went his way into the house. For the moment, Miss Rachel had completely unmanned him. Judge from that how fond he must have been of her. Sergeant Cuff and I were left face to face at the bottom of the steps. The sergeant stood with his face set towards a gap in the trees, commanding a view of one of the windings of the drive which led from the house. He had his hands in his pockets, and he was softly whistling the last rose of summer to himself. "'There's a time for everything,' I said savagely enough. "'This isn't a time for whistling.' At that moment the carriage appeared in the distance through the gap, "'on its way to the lodge gate. "'There was another man, besides Samuel, "'plainly visible in the rumble behind. "'All right,' said the sergeant to himself. "'He turned round to me. "'It's no time for whistling, Mr. Betteridge, as you say. "'It's time to take this business in hand now, "'without sparing anybody. "'We'll begin with Rosanna Spearman. "'Where is Joyce?' "'We both called for Joyce and received no answer. "'I sent one of the stable boys to look for him.' "'You heard what I said to Miss Verinder,' remarked the sergeant, while we were waiting. "'And you saw how she received it. "'I tell her plainly that her leaving us will be an obstacle "'in the way of my recovering her diamond, "'and she leaves in the face of that statement. "'Your young lady has got a travelling companion "'in her mother's carriage, Mr. Betteridge, "'and the name of it is the Moonstone.' "'I said nothing. "'I only held on like death to my belief in Miss Rachel.' The stable-boy came back, followed very unwillingly, as it appeared to me, by Joyce. "'Where is Rosanna Spearman?' asked Sergeant Cuff. 
I can't account for it, sir, Joyce began, and I am very sorry, but somehow or other... Before I went to Frizzing Hall, said the sergeant, cutting him short, I told you to keep your eyes on Rosanna Spearman, without allowing her to discover that she was being watched. Do you mean to tell me that you have let her give you the slip? I'm afraid, sir, says Joyce, beginning to tremble, that I was perhaps a little too careful not to let her discover me. There are such a many passages in the lower parts of this house. How long is it since you missed her? Nigh on an hour since, sir. You can go back to your regular business at Frizzing Hall, said the sergeant, speaking just as composedly as ever, in his usual quiet and dreary way. I don't think your talents are at all in our line, Mr. Joyce. Your present form of employment is a trifle beyond you. Good morning. The man slunk off. I find it very difficult to describe how I was affected by the discovery that Rosanna Spearman was missing. I seemed to be in fifty different minds about it, all at the same time. In that state, I stood staring at Sergeant Cuff, and my powers of language quite failed me. "'No, Mr. Betteridge,' said the sergeant, as if he had discovered the uppermost thought in me and was picking it out to be answered before all the rest. "'Your young friend Rosanna won't slip through my fingers so easy as you think. "'As long as I know where Miss Verinder is, "'I have the means at my disposal of tracing Miss Verinder's accomplice. "'I prevented them from communicating last night. "'Very good. "'They will get together at Frizzing Hall instead of getting together here.' The present inquiry must be simply shifted, rather sooner than I had anticipated, from this house to the house at which Miss Verinder is visiting. In the meantime, I'm afraid I must trouble you to call the servants together again. I went round with him to the servants' hall. It is very disgraceful, but it is not the less true that I had another attack of the detective fever when he said those last words. I forgot that I hated Sergeant Cuff. I seized him confidentially by the arm. I said, for goodness sake, tell us what you're going to do with the servants now. The great cuff stood stock still and addressed himself in a kind of melancholy rapture to the empty air. If this man, said the sergeant, apparently meaning me, only understood the growing of roses, he would be the most completely perfect character on the face of creation. After that strong expression of feeling, he sighed and put his arm through mine. "'This is how it stands,' he said, dropping down again to business. "'Rosanna has done one of two things. "'She has either gone direct to Frizzing Hall before I can get there, "'or she has gone first to visit her hiding place at the Shivering Sand. "'The first thing to find out is which of the servants saw the last of her "'before she left the house.' On instituting this inquiry, it turned out that the last person who had set eyes on Rosanna was Nancy, the kitchen maid. Nancy had seen her slip out with a letter in her hand and stop the butcher's man, who had just been delivering some meat at the back door. Nancy had heard her ask the man to post the letter when he got back to Frizzing Hall. The man had looked at the address and had said it was a roundabout way of delivering a letter directed to Cobb's Hole to post it at Frizzing Hall, and that, moreover, on a Saturday, which would prevent the letter from getting to its destination until Monday morning. Rosanna had answered that the delivery of the letter being delayed till Monday was of no importance. The only thing she wished to be sure of was that the man would do what she told him. The man had promised to do it and had driven away. Nancy had been called back to her work in the kitchen, 
and no other person had seen anything afterwards of Rosanna Spearman. Well, I asked when we were alone again. Well, says the sergeant, I must go to Frizzing Hall. About the letter, sir? Yes, the memorandum of the hiding place is in that letter. I must see the address at the post office. If it is the address I suspect, I shall pay our friend Mrs. Yoland another visit on Monday next. I went in with the sergeant to order the pony chaise. In the stable yard, we got a new light thrown on the missing girl. Chapter 19 The news of Rosanna's disappearance had, as it appeared, spread among the out-of-door servants. They, too, had made their inquiries, and they had just laid hands on a quick little imp, nicknamed Duffy, who was occasionally employed in weeding the garden, and who had seen Rosanna Spearman as lately as half an hour since. Duffy was certain that the girl had passed him in the fir plantation, not walking, but running, in the direction of the seashore. "'Does this boy know the coast hereabouts?' asked Sergeant Cuff. "'He has been born and bred on the coast,' I answered. "'Duffy,' says the sergeant, "'do you want to earn a shilling? "'If you do, come along with me. "'Keep the pony chaise ready, Mr. Betteridge, till I come back.' He started for the shivering sand at a rate that my legs, though well enough preserved for my time of life, had no hope of matching. Little Duffy trotted off at the sergeant's heels. Here again, I find it impossible to give anything like a clear account of the state of my mind in the interval after Sergeant Cuff had left us. A curious and stupefying restlessness got possession of me. I did a dozen different needless things in and out of the house, not one of which I can remember. I don't even know how long it was after the sergeant had gone to the sands when Duffy came running back with a message for me. Sergeant Cuff had given the boy a leaf torn out of his pocketbook on which was written in pencil, send me one of Rosanna Spearman's boots and be quick about it. I dispatched the first woman's servant I could find to Rosanna's room and I sent the boy back to say that I myself would follow him with the boot. This, I am well aware, was not the quickest way to take of obeying the directions which I had received, but I was resolved to see for myself what new mystification was going on before I trusted Rosanna's boot in the sergeant's hands. My old notion of screening the girl, if I could, seemed to have come back on me again at the eleventh hour. This state of feeling, to say nothing of the detective fever, hurried me off as soon as I got the boot at the nearest approach to a run which a man turned seventy can reasonably hope to make. As I got near the shore, the clouds gathered black, and the rain came down, drifting in great white sheets of water before the wind. I heard the thunder of the sea on the sand bank at the mouth of the bay, a little further on, I passed the boy crouching for shelter under the lee of the sandhills. Then I saw the raging sea and the rollers tumbling in on the sandbank and the driven rain sweeping over the waters like a flying garment and the yellow wilderness of the beach with one solitary black figure standing on it, the figure of Sergeant Cuff. He waved his hand towards the north when he first saw me. Keep on that side, he shouted, and come on down here to me. I went down to him, choking for breath, with my heart leaping as if it was like to leap out of me. I was past speaking. I had a hundred questions to put to him, and not one of them would pass my lips. His face frightened me. I saw a look in his eyes which was a look of horror. 
he snatched the boot out of my hand and set it in a footmark on the sand, bearing south from us as we stood and pointing straight towards the rocky ledge called the South Spit. The mark was not yet blurred out by the rain, and the girl's boot fitted it to a hair. The sergeant pointed to the boot in the footmark without saying a word. I caught at his arm and tried to speak to him, and failed as I had failed when I tried before. He went on, following the footsteps down and down to where the rocks and the sand joined. The south spit was just a wash with the flowing tide. The waters heaved over the hidden face of the shivering sand. Now this way, and now that, with an obstinate patience that was dreadful to see, Sergeant Cuff tried the boot in the footsteps, and always found it pointing the same way, straight to the rocks. Hunt, as he might, no sign could he find anywhere of the footsteps walking from them. He gave it up at last. Still keeping silence, he looked again at me, and then he looked out at the waters before us, heaving in deeper and deeper over the quicksand. I looked where he looked, and I saw his thought in his face. A dreadful, dumb trembling crawled all over me on a sudden. I fell upon my knees on the beach. "'She's been back at the hiding place,' I heard the sergeant say to himself. "'Some fatal accident has happened to her on those rocks.' The girl's altered looks and words and actions, the numbed, deadened way in which she listened to me and spoke to me when I had found her sweeping the corridor but a few hours since, rose up in my mind and warned me, even as the sergeant spoke, that his guess was wide of the dreadful truth. I tried to tell him of the fear that had frozen me up. I tried to say, the death she has died, sergeant, was a death of her own seeking. No, the words wouldn't come. The dumb trembling held me in its grip. I couldn't feel the driving rain. I couldn't see the rising tide. As in the vision of a dream, the poor lost creature came back before me. I saw her again as I'd seen her in the past time, on the morning when I went to fetch her into the house. I heard her again, telling me that the shivering sand seemed to draw her to it against her will, and wondering whether her grave was waiting for her there. The horror of it struck at me in some unfathomable way, through my own child. My girl was just her age. My girl, tried as Rosanna was tried, might have lived that miserable life and died this dreadful death. The sergeant kindly lifted me up and turned me away from the sight of the place where she had perished. With that relief, I began to fetch my breath again and to see things about me as things really were, Looking towards the sandhills, I saw the men's servants from out of doors and the fishermen, named Yolan, all running down to us together, and all having taken the alarm, calling out to know if the girl had been found. In the fewest words, the sergeant showed them the evidence of the footmarks and told them that a fatal accident must have happened to her. He then picked out the fisherman from the rest and put a question to him, turning about again towards the sea. "'Tell me,' he said, could a boat have taken her off in such weather as this from those rocks where her footmarks stop? The fisherman pointed to the rollers tumbling in on the sand bank and to the great waves leaping up in clouds of foam against the headlands on either side of us. No boat that ever was built, he answered, could have got to her through that. Sergeant Cuff looked for the last time at the footmarks on the sand, which the rain was now fast blurring out. 
"'There,' he said, "'is the evidence that she can't have left this place by land. "'And here,' he went on, looking at the fisherman, "'is the evidence that she can't have got away by sea.' "'He stopped and considered for a minute. "'She was seen running towards this place half an hour "'before I got here from the house,' he said to Yoland. "'Some time had passed since then. "'Call it altogether an hour ago. "'How high would the water be at that time "'on this side of the rocks?' "'He pointed to the south side, "'otherwise the side which was not filled up by the quicksand. "'As the tide makes today,' said the fisherman, "'there wouldn't have been water enough to drown a kitten.' "'on that side of the spit an hour since. "'Sergeant Cuff turned about northward towards the quicksand. "'How much on this side?' he asked. "'Less still,' answered Yoland. "'The shivering sand would have been just a wash and no more.' "'The sergeant turned to me and said that the accident "'must have happened on the side of the quicksand. "'My tongue was loosened at that. "'No accident,' I told him. "'When she came to this place, she came weary of her life.' to end it here. He started back from me. How do you know, he asked. The rest of them crowded round. The sergeant recovered himself instantly. He put them back from me. He said I was an old man. He said the discovery had shaken me. He said, let him alone a little. Then he turned to Yoland and asked, is there any chance of finding her when the tide ebbs again? And Yoland answered, none. What the sand gets, the sand keeps forever. Having said that, the fisherman came a step nearer and addressed himself to me. "'Mr. Betteridge,' he said, "'I have a word to say to you about the young woman's death. Four foot out, broadwise, along the side of the spit, "'there's a shelf of rock about half-fathom down under the sand. "'My question is, why didn't she strike that? "'If she slipped by accident from off the spit, "'she fell in where there's foothold at the bottom at a depth "'that would barely cover her to the waist.' "'She must have waited out or jumped out into the deeps beyond, "'or she wouldn't be missing now. "'No accident, sir. "'The deeps of the quicksand have got her, "'and they've got her by her own act.' "'After that testimony from a man whose knowledge was to be relied on, "'the sergeant was silent. "'The rest of us, like him, held our peace. "'With one accord, we all turned back up the slope of the beach.' At the sand hillocks we were met by the undergroom, running to us from the house. The lad is a good lad, and has an honest respect for me. He handed me a little note, with a decent sorrow in his face. Penelope sent me with this, Mr. Betteridge, she said. She found it in Rosanna's room. It was her last farewell word to the old man who had done his best, thank God, always done his best, to befriend her. You have often forgiven me, Mr. Betteridge, in past times, "'When you next see the shivering sand, try to forgive me once more. "'I have found my grave where my grave was waiting for me. "'I have lived and died, sir, grateful for your kindness.' "'There was no more than that. "'Little as it was, I hadn't manhood enough to hold up against it. "'Your tears come easy when you're young and beginning the world. "'Your tears come easy when you're old and leaving it.' "'I burst out crying.' Sergeant Cuff took a step nearer to me, meaning kindly, I don't doubt. I shrank back from him. Don't touch me, I said. It's the dread of you that has driven her to it. You are wrong, Mr. Betteridge, he answered quietly, but there will be time enough to speak of it when we are indoors again. 
I followed the rest of them with the help of the groom's arm. Through the driving rain, we went back to meet the trouble and the terror that were waiting for us at the house. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.